Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sophia Nymphius. Sophia is an associate professor at Edith Cowan University and leads high-performance services for softball Western Australia. She previously served as a sports science manager for the Hurley Surfing Australia High Performance Centre and has held positions in sports science and strength conditioning in the U.S. and Australia, supporting athletes at various competitive levels. She has been an invited presenter and researcher nationally and internationally on topics from elite performance to diversity for innovation and has all also published numerous peer-reviewed research articles in several book chapters. The reason I've invited Sophia on Leave Your Mark is that I was struck by her desire to share her knowledge and challenge convention through research and applied practice. She's indeed leaving her mark in the world of human performance. Welcome, Sophia. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, as always. It's nice to see you again. It's been a while. The last time I saw you, we were climbing up Camelback Mountain in Phoenix. (laughs) We were making maybe a bad decision to do that in the Phoenix heat. (laughs) We made sure we were hydrated. And then I think we ate some kind of burger or something like that after that. So we earned our burger. I think it was that day. You were uh, born and raised in Tampa. Does that mean that you uh, surfed when you were a little kid or not? It means I wished I could have surfed when I was little, but being on the bay side, it's more like a skimboard kind of land. So great beaches, but not great for surfing. <laughs> it's a good skimming bird board place. Tell me about growing up in Tampa. You uh, you had NYC parents. So uh, what are what is it like growing up in uh, in retirement land? Some to some degree with people who are from the kinetic and uh, frenetic world of the, of New York City. Yeah, well, I think that half of New York City moves to Florida. So um, I feel like uh, my parents didn't think it was that big of a change, minus not dealing with the snow. Mm. Um, And then I think um, for me, it was a it was an interesting place. Tampa was growing quite a bit in in the 80s and 90s. It was actually a really big center for skateboarding, ironically. And when I was young, I was quite into that as a, a hobby. But it's also one of those great places that you can play sport outside all year round. So that is probably a breeding ground for where I'm at now. Yeah. Um, but f- from my parents' perspective, it was just, I think they wanted to raise me in a place that was a little bit more free than the inner city of New York. Now New York's so so chic and cool, but maybe... <laughs> 
maybe the, <laughs> maybe the late seventies and eighties, we weren't thinking the same way at that time. So I think they were pretty grateful to um, bring me up down in Florida where I could play easily outside all the time. Yeah, it has a pretty nutsy reputation, New York in the 70s and 80s. So they were probably doing good good for you. <laughs> so you were a skateboarder when you were a kid? I think like every kid, you um, you pick up the things you can do without needing to be organized. And um, I was quite a town boy when I was a kid. So skating and playing outside and climbing trees that probably shouldn't be climbed. Um, that was my thing. But uh, I guess it kept me out of most trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Did you scare your parents? Like my daughter climbs trees. It scares the crap out of me. I can't watch her. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I don't know. This might be a, a bias, but maybe my, my mom definitely scared at times. My dad, pretty proud. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I was definitely a product. My dad was um, an athlete himself, a great baseball player and, and a boxer, fought in the Golden Gloves in New York and, and the like, and went through the system um, in the minor leagues before going to Vietnam. And um, I think he, in a way, I might be speaking on his behalf, he, he lived some of his dreams that, that didn't uh, ultimate because he, he did go to three tours in Vietnam and wow. he put everything he could about sport into me and taught me everything from, from throwing to catching and real, how to be competitive probably. That's a, um, a pivot off of that because that's a really, um, powerful part of, uh, American history that we look back on now as the Vietnam war. What, what kind of conversations have you had with your father about that period of time or what he went through, or is he quiet about that? You know, I think like most people over time, you learn to open up a little bit more. Hmm. So when, when I was quite young, my dad would tell me all the really funny stories. If you, if you believe it or not, there are some really, I guess they had a lot of time on their hands and, and you could either, just make nothing of it or make hilarious stories. And my dad was quite good at that. So, um, you know, he'd tell me how he would trade up on things. I think he learned a lot about business maybe <laughs> while being in Vietnam. So he's like, you know, I started with everyone wanted a steak. You missed a steak. So I had a case of steaks. And since I had steaks, I needed a fridge. So I traded people to get a fridge. And then once I had a fridge, I could keep, you know, and it just, it just kept escalating. So, <laughs> maybe maybe contraband in the military but he had quite a lot built up in his little unit so ingenuity um, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but maybe uh more recently as as he's gotten older and i've gotten older he's told me uh, more of the difficult stories and and the things that maybe at first you don't want to share but he's got some really close friends that have gone through similar things and that that's helped him um open up and you realize what a how much pressure at such a young age being in that war and, and what, and the toll it took, I think my dad handled it really well and he's got a great outlook. He came back to the U S and he's worked for the post office, which is a really good job. It's a government job. And having been a ex military person, I'm sure that helped him get that break, but he's been there for over 40 years. Hmm. He's still working today. So you know, it's a, a funny thing. I talked to him and he's never said he's regretted one thing, to be honest. He's um, super fair about that. But I know the career and I've read uh, the level of play he was at as a, as a baseball player. Mm. And um, 
and and I probably maybe even more than he does wonder what if you know mm. but then he tells me something great like well if that that didn't happen I wouldn't have met your mom and you wouldn't be here so mm. yeah it's interesting Thanks, to, to say this, <laughs> the segues of life that uh, you sometimes um wonder what would have happened if you went a different way but then when if you did there's other great things you wouldn't have necessarily had so you're the one he got got uh instead so <laughs> <to speak. laughs> um he was a great baseball player uh what did did that inspire you to get into baseball or was that that something that was happenstance was he a real driver of you getting into that sport you know, something that I, I know here in Australia now, and I would imagine it's just like, I think America is very similar. Baseball and softball sports that are played through families. I mean, I think a lot of sports are like that. Like, yeah, oh, I have a brother or I have a dad or a grandfather and they played, so I decided to play. You're so influenced by your environment. And when, as for as long as I can remember, my dad would take me to spring training games, which is a great thing about Florida. You can pay a dollar. I don't know what it is now, but I remember it being a dollar then, mm-hmm. but you know, for a dollar and you can sit in the seats and you're seeing the top players. And, and um, we would do that through the summers. And I mean, I loved it. I brought my glove to the game and hoped to catch a foul ball. And, you know, we would, we collected baseball cards. My dad had a small baseball card shop so I would memorize statistics on the back of cards. So whether he actively tried, he never tried to push me into it, but he was so excited by it. So I was excited by it. And so I, I definitely, I played baseball till I was 14. So I played on all boys teams until I was 14. Wow. And um, he wanted me, he supported me 110%. And this was in, uh, it, it's a little more, um, prevalent now, although there are so many more women's teams, you probably don't have to do that. But in the eighties, it wasn't, you were definitely the only girl for quite a few little leagues playing mm. on the boys teams. And I remember that time, but I never felt out of place because my dad treated it as just, you're a great ball player. And this is where the best ball players are playing off you get. <laughs> wow, That's cool. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. What was, how was the experience of playing with with a boys in the sense that were you accepted or was there any struggle in that? I remember, you know, it's funny the things you do and don't remember. I can't remember having any problems with my teammates ever, hmm. to be honest. Um, I guess, particularly when you're young, you take a lot of things at face value. So if you're good, you're good. And you're part of the team. And, uh, I could, I could throw and I could hit and I could run and to the level or, or at that time, it's almost beneficial, I think, cause, cause a lot of girls adapt at a younger age mm. motor wise. I was probably a little ahead. Um, mm-hmm. and so that helped quite a bit for the acceptance side. And I don't think they thought anything of it. The place where I would ironically get a comment here or there, but I just left that up to my dad, was, you know, you'd get a a random parent who would make a comment or, but my dad was in the crowd and needless to say, an ex-boxer, good ball player himself and a couple tours of Vietnam probably, (laughs) 
probably removed all need to be, uh, you know, shy about saying what he thought. So. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you, what did your mom represent to you as you were growing up? She was, uh, I think you'd said in your thing to me, she was from Puerto Rico. So what, what is that part of your history or your background play in, in your life? Um, I'd tell, I'd probably describe my mom as a silent achiever. Um, mm. she was always there at all times, came to every single one of my games, you know, made sure I was ready for the day, um, took care of everything in the house, my food and, and, um, where she had to driving me around. And at the same time also worked, um, as well. She has her own business and does nails and, you know, went to night school to learn how to do that as a, as a, as a career. And, um, so it was kind of really amazing considering I, she was, she was always there and, but I knew she, she worked as well. So I'm not quite sure if she ever slept, but, um, for me, they both played immensely important parts in my life and that my mom was a constant source of and my dad left me with a real strong competitive spirit and I didn't realize it at the time but how important it is for your dad to be supportive of you as an athlete if you're a female athlete mm. um and now I see and I've read the research it's, it's hindsight how that can really change your perspective and and your desire to achieve mm. And whereas my mom, I knew I had her support. You, you, you always have your, your mother's support, hopefully. So she was just that constant in the background. And then my dad just interjected with that, that harder competitive spirit all the time. So it was, I was pretty lucky. They're, they're unique in that um, they gave me different things. And they worked immensely hard to provide. And they definitely are the breaking point in our family and in transitioning up the socioeconomic ladder. Mm-hmm. And um, it's amazing what a difference that gave me probably in comparison to say the rest of my family and, um, and just a small difference uh, moving from kind of an inner city, really tough to make ends meet to them being, you know, now in the middle class, um, you know, it, now I recognize the combination of effects of, your socioeconomic status and my mom's um, we were mixed and um, and how and and they both did not have the opportunity to go to college so they're both just um, luckily high school graduates but their step in how much they provided to me really gave me a platform to succeed to a higher level than I ever when I was growing up even reflected was possible but I imagine that they're they're the equivalent of that tipping point. They they provided me the tipping point, um, and then after that, I mean, it's not necessarily easy, but it's it's a, a lot easier. And so it's probably why I'm so passionate about giving people an opportunity, um, because I I realize in hindsight that you know it wasn't like they were just you know throwing money around, but they definitely did the hard yards to put me at just that next level that made opportunity so much easier to grasp. Was that something you realized or understood when you were growing up or it's something that you look back more um, 
with a different lens now that you're grown up, so to speak, and, and can see it differently? I, I didn't know it when I was young, but I was acutely aware of being, of being grateful and, and to work hard and achieve. Mm. And I think they instilled that in me, but I think everybody's parents try to instill that. And whether you uptake that is a different thing, but um, there was something that I sensed was important for whatever reason, but only now that I, I um, understand and almost my move from America to Australia. And I've been in Australia for 14 years it's even easier for me to look from quote unquote outside in mm. and see some of the, the underpinning struggles that occur as a function of systems that are so much larger than yourself that you wish didn't, or you don't believe control you until you have a chance to look from the outside in. Mm-hmm. And so I think most of what I've learned has been hindsight and reflection, but it's been really powerful and I'm, I'm really grateful I've had the chance to step away and reflect on that. Um, I just hope while I was growing up, I was super grateful as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can see it on your face that you, I'm sure your parents see that from, from you when you see them. So that's the greatest knowing that I am a dad now that uh, you you feel that when you're, when your kids feel it. So it's nice to see it on yourself. Um, Tell me about how you discovered um, sports science or, you know, the, the sort of educational pathway that you ended up taking, what, what was that all about for you? Well, sports science was definitely not what I sought to do originally. Mm. Um, I don't even know. I probably didn't even know the term until the very, very late nineties, maybe 2000. Um, when I started out, I really was just into sport per se. And I had the influence of a lot of um, different individuals and, and being in high school, even one of the, when you're an athlete, probably your coaches are your most influential people. I had a lot of great educators as well in the sciences and math mathematics that I was lucky to have. I had great science teachers and math teachers actually from, from kindergarten all the way up. I, I was really lucky in that. But in high school, I had a, a basketball coach, Sherry Musa, who was an ex-UMass player. So, so a collegiate basketball athlete. So I already thought, oh, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's something I'd love to do is to go to university on a college scholarship. And um, she definitely helped me get recruited and get scouted. She also happened to be in sports management as a major. That's what she did. And so I, I picked that up, you know, vicariously. And she actually gave me a, a job, which led into a, a pretty great job because I ended up taking sports management as a first major mm. in college. And I um, worked with the Tampa Bay Rays in their inaugural season oh, um, wow. so in baseball, but in marketing. So basically... <laughs> um, selling jerseys. And, um, I also love science so much. I did a double degree in biology cause I didn't want to leave the science behind. So human biology, which kept my hand in science. And while I was in college, which the university I went to, I went to Barton college, which is a division two school in North Carolina, which is known. 
it's a big basketball school. It's a basketball mm-hmm. area. They went to, you know, the NCAA Division II playoffs, and we've got a, a nice heritage of popular men's and women's basketball programs there. But while I was there, I met an athletic trainer who this is great is um, her name's Jennifer O'Donoghue's now at North Carolina State. And she asked me what I was going to do next, which I'm pretty certain I replied, go to practice because she was taping my ankle at the time. (laughs) Obviously this was intended to be a deeper conversation. Um, But um, she, she then kind of took me under and introduced me to the national strength conditioning association. And um, I actually went to my first conference with her because she went, went to that conference and it really opened my eyes to strength and conditioning. And then my first realization of the research behind it, which ultimately becomes sports science. And, um, and through that, I ended up, she gave me a contact to Travis Triplett, who is at University of Wisconsin at lacrosse. I got my first strength coach position there. So I had these people that before I knew what I was supposed to do, or before I knew there was even something that I could do, Mm. They they literally must have been laughing inside because they 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 had an idea of where I was trying to go. I just didn't know where that was. And um, all of these people kind of just pointed me in these directions. So I definitely started in sport management, moved towards strength and conditioning, which for a lot of ex-athletes is a natural fit because you've been trained mm-hmm. in that way. And I was science inclined. I had this sport management. I understood organization and and the bigger picture side of it, which I think the sport marketing was very valuable for. We probably leave it out too much in our current curriculum. Mm. And I kind of made my own uh, sports science degree by doing the raw science. I did a whole degree in biology, human bio. Did a whole degree in um, sport marketing. I ended up doing a master's in exercise science. And it wasn't until my PhD technically that I did my PhD in sports science. Hmm. Jumping into it at my PhD, I felt like I, uh, I had already, I understood it. I just didn't have the title to it. So um, <laughs> it was a really funny path and it was definitively not pre-planned. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I'm wondering, I, I would like to know your perspective being that you were an athlete um, to begin with, do you remember the first time you, you had to train to play a sport to that you had to lift weights or that you had to encounter the gym? Um, do you, do you remember that moment for yourself and what, how did you embrace that? I actually definitely do. And I was, um, in high school in the late nineties and, um, or mid to late nineties, that was my high school career. And um, I was really, you know, it's serendipitous. It was just by luck, my softball coach in high school. So I had this great kind of mentor on one side, my basketball coach, ex-player, assistant women's basketball coach, but the head junior varsity coach. And I had someone I looked up to on that side. And then my softball coach, she really believed in resistance training from the get-go. And I don't know how popular of a idea that was for female athletes anyway in mm. 1995 or 1996. I know a couple of people were doing it, but I remember her bringing us into the gym and having a program 
And normally it was just football that was in there. In fact, we didn't even lift weights for my basketball team now that I think about it. Mm. But our preseason for softball, we went in there and she wrote us a program. And, um, and it was just an expectation. There was no, no questions asked. And so really early, I just thought that was normal. And that, that's what you do. And I had um, one of my coaches that I looked up to. You know, we were a Florida State champion um, softball team in Florida. That's a big deal considering Florida has the entire population of Australia. <laughs> and um, so winning a state championship there feels like winning a national championship here. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were, we were a good team and these were the expectations set. And, and so I got exposure to lifting when I was 15 mm-hmm. or 14. And, um, and I kept that as an important through thing. And obviously in college we lifted, but it, it, I knew more about lifting despite no formal education in it than a lot of people have that are going into it formally educated because I had great mentor coaches that Mm. kind of taught me through experience. So I had a lot of experiential learning Mm. and then later actually went into the more formal learning. Mm. Very cool. What do you, what do you, just to sort of segue a little bit on that, you know, as you mentioned, I, I had um, an interesting um, career point in that same space working at a university in Canada between 90 and 98, where I had to sort of oversight all the training for all the varsity teams. And so I was pretty much introducing to your point, the prior to me, the football team, you know, had the strength coach and that was it. And I had to introduce strength training to all these women on the basketball team, the soccer team, et cetera. And I'm just curious as a woman looking back at that time and now, and you've seen this kind of up ramping of, of training and it's sort of real, you know, embracing in the female culture of performance. Just tell me about what you experienced watching that uh, and seeing it and being a part of it. Do you, what does that feel like to you looking back on it? Uh, are, are you impressed with it? Are you, because there used to be so many concerns for a lot of women about training and it seems like we've got mm-hmm. past that now. It's kind of cool. There's, there's definitely a change. Um, and with change, you're always going to have some pockets of, of lag, we'll call it or, or resistance. And, but if I, I mean, just thinking about when I went through, and although that seems to keep getting further and further away from present day, it didn't seem like it was too long ago. But the amount of change in, say, 20 years is, is exponential. And, um, you know, I, do, I recognize that I happen to be in the right place at the right time and have individuals that were pretty forward-thinking for that time. But I've met... I've met several people and and my teammates included at the time that before they even got to university, that wasn't, that was a, not only was it not provided, but it was probably even as an undertone, not okay. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, and ironically, I, I just had an under 15s team two days ago in softball and we're just running a uh, open program for um, resistance training for these girls and all of them come 
just ready to lift. Um, they're excited about it. They, they're, I haven't heard one of them make some of the comments that, and I'm not even going to bring them up because I don't even want to give them airtime of the things that people used to think about what lifting does for women, mm-hmm. not the positive ones. <laughs> uh, that, that mindset is not there in the slightest with these girls. They're, they're 12, 13, 14 years old. They ask right away, oh, that was easy. Can, can, I, can, I, can I go up? Can I have more weight? Um, can we do this? Uh, I'll give that a go, you know? And I'm not inciting that change myself. I wish I were. Hmm. But that means that they're getting that from the sphere of influence around them. And that could be parents. It could be friends or, or fortunately or unfortunately, social influence. And just that in itself makes my job so much easier mm-hmm. um, because nothing we can do, no matter how influential you are, can you fight the, the air of, uh, of the social underpinning. And so, you know, I think that there's been lots of people doing exactly what I'm doing now with training and really trying to provide, but like, like any team, unless the team comes to you ready to train, you can tell them until you're blue in the face, what's good and what's bad, but until they're ready for it, it's never going to have the influence that it will when those people come in ready. And now not only do we have the people that are ready to do the training, but those people have been waiting for a long time. Mm-hmm. Now we've got the, the, the young girls and women ready and with a social environment that allows them to be ready because they were fighting something that was bigger than themselves. And it's not just about their personal education, although that can help combat some of the negative underpinnings from social and and broader influence. Um, Now that the whole, it's kind of that, I'll use that same word, that tipping point has gone, that the, the change we'll see in the girls that are 10 to 14 now, when we see them as athletes in say 10 more years time, we'll actually get to reap the benefit of all of the, the fight that's been for 30, 40 years of trying to get that equal opportunity and not just the equal opportunity for girls, but actually the belief that they should have equal opportunity Mm -hmm. because we're giving them equal opportunity, but if we don't have the belief surrounding them, it, it, it just fights it fights against them. And, and we forget to um, discuss that influence when we talk about the performance outcomes mm-hmm. um, that it's a lot more than just the opportunity, but, but all of these things. So if I circle it back around and I go, when I started, there were people there, there were great people doing the right things, but they were fighting. They were, they were just a surfboard with a wave and the wave was winning. <laughs> I'm hoping that now these people have caught the wave instead of trying to fight the wave because um, they're all going in the same direction. Um, cool. So, What was the yeah. um, wave like for you? Because you were, you, you were at the beginning of, um, of a, you know, I'm sure, sh- I'm sure there were females of influence and strength and conditioning prior to you for sure. Um, but your generation is probably one of the first, I would call significant generations of strength conditioning 
women and what was that like was there was there did you have to fight for your space or did did or was it relatively easy well i don't think this profession is easy for anyone <laughs> so um <laughs> no matter who it is um i think the profession's so vastly competitive um and you know there's a few shining stars of example that we always will recognize as inspirational a lot of times i think the strength coaches um would look up to other female coaches in general instead of just the strength conditioning coach um to take inspiration from um and 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 classic female strength coaches like a Meg Stone but it's tough um it's tough when there's not a lot of examples because those people might be influential in your um in your profession but there you also want to see a bit of yourself in those people as well mm. and um you know like a similar you know background or story or things like that and so i think that it, it was pretty hard um but i'll go back to when i was kind of playing on boys teams or whatnot and i think instead of looking for specific role models or recognizing that i wasn't represented in the group i was lucky and this is not the same for everyone so i need to recognize that i always look for the things that i have in common with other people mm. and um i had lots of other mentor coaches like dennis klein who was one of my mentor coaches and even though he didn't embody me visually as much as he probably wishes he looked as good as i did <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Dennis. Um, was a good, bit of a joke there, but um, <laughs> I just sought to find people that I I recognized. Dennis was a geek. He was a he loved technology, and he programmed and he he did things besides being a great strength coach and program. And he thought outside the box, and so that that's what I connected with Dennis upon. And and each one of the people I just connected on some other level. Now I was able to do that, but it would have been a darn bit easier to have some obvious role models, mm. like some obvious role models that when you looked at them, it, it really made you see the possibilities. And for me, I didn't have the same amount of um, barrier in not seeing myself, but I've talked to so many people that have thanked me because they could see it's possible because of who I am or where I came from or the start that I had. Mm. And they've said that helped me believe it was possible. Mm. So just because I haven't experienced that need, that desire to have an, a, a great example of self in front of you, doesn't mean it's not one of the most influential things that can happen. Mm. And so I do believe that it was a benefit to me that the method by which I am motivated allowed me to succeed despite, because at the time that I came through, it was not going to be a succeed because, because I didn't have, you know, a small feisty Puerto Rican role model strength <laughs> coach. That was, <laughs> that was just the epitome of self. 
<laughs> now there's a couple. There's quite a few that I'm pretty pretty grateful for. Um, now you are the small feisty Puerto Rican. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <For a while. laughs> Tell me about uh, how you end up in in uh, Australia. Like, girl from parents from New York City living in Tampa ends up in Australia. It's an interesting story, I'm sure. But we'll figure, we'll we'll segue to that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, like everything else, it was um, I chased opportunity. So I didn't. If an opportunity were put in front, I just went after it and worried about the consequences later. Um, and maybe that was an internal recognition that this field isn't easy. And if you're getting given an opportunity or if, if an opportunity presents itself, then you need to take that opportunity as rapidly as possible. If you're going to have any chance of succeeding. So, um, I was with, uh, Jeff McBride and Travis Triplett at Appalachian state at the time. And I was, they, they believed that I'd be a great PhD. So um, they were making some recommendations and they previously worked with Rob Newton themselves, one Jeff with PhD and, and Travis as a postdoc. And they said, you know, you, you should definitely contact him because we feel you would fit and you would be a great PhD. They basically called Rob and said, you know, we think we have someone for you. And, and so it, that's pretty much the story, to be honest. It was, um, a bit of a contact, a bit of a people that knew each other that vouched for my quality. And without those people believing in me and then having enough belief to tell others um, that I was worthy of taking on, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. And um, they, they offered me a scholarship and um, something I didn't mention, but I managed to make my way through school without student debt. <laughs> Um, that's one because I happen to be a good athlete I guess one because the NCAA is so proud of athletes that actually graduate they give um, they give scholarships to those that apply and are successful for NCAA athletes that completed four-year degrees and I happen to get one for my master's to do that and then here I was offered a scholarship for my PhD and I think the reason I have no qualms about chasing those opportunities is at the current time, probably I didn't want to, nor were we probably the most suited to have a lot of student debt, not my family. Mm. Um, and so I think it makes it a lot easier to say yes to opportunity, even if it's taking you far away or if it's in a place that's maybe you know, Perth is actually ideal, but there were probably a couple other cities I went to that weren't ideal. Um, and, um, so I think the combination of just recognition of how good these opportunities are, despite the negatives mm. and that these things don't come easy. And if you're, you are going to make it based on who you are, you sure as heck better be willing to say yes to everything. Mm. And so that I ended up based on a word of mouth and then an application and Rob Newton um, said, sure, come out to Perth, which by the way, I didn't know where it was on the map. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask, have you, have you ever been to Australia before? Or? Nope. <laughs> hadn't, hadn't been to Australia and definitively was not aware there was a capital city on the west coast of Australia. <laughs> um, so the first time I got to Australia was my first day of my PhD. 
and I knew zero humans over here or had not met them face to face until I found out Mike McGuigan, who also was at uh, University of Wisconsin at La Crosse when I was there. I found out he ironically had taken a, a job at the same time that I had accepted my PhD. So I did then know N equals one person here in Australia. <laughs> Tell me about the cultural experience of moving there as an American from Tampa with New York roots and all, all the other uh, pot of, of, of uh, ethnicity in your, in your blood. Uh, what, what was moving to that country like? What, what struck you when you first moved to Australia? Um, you know, I, I found it really easy on the grand scale. Um, minus Australians having a second version of English, which could <laughs> make speaking the same language interesting, considering you should understand each other. Um, but on, on the greater scale, moving to Australia of any of the countries I could have moved to was one of the easier versions. The biggest culture difference is, I'd say, the more laissez-faire attitude of Australians. Um, just kind of live, let live. She'll be right, so to speak. Um, no worries is definitely a large part of their culture, whereas in the U.S., and again, these are things that I can reflect upon and see from the outside looking in now. Mm. Um, we're a pretty intense, <laughs> uptight, uh, aggressive, strong-willed kind of uh, culture in America. Um, don't believe in many holidays. <laughs> um, whereas Australians are like, oh, mate, can't wait for my four weeks. I'm taking them all at once. And literally when I eat to this day, if I tell someone at home that, oh yeah, I'm taking four weeks off. They're like, well, what, how'd you get that off work? <laughs> um, it is the number one conversation I have with, with Americans going back home and, and talking about it. And that's taught me a lot about what's important. And um, if, if I think about something that's been great is I've learned to take the best of both sides of these cultures that I've really, I've, I've, I'm, I live the Australian kind of life now and 14 years in, um, I really know both cultures intimately well. Mm. And I try to reflect as much as possible and, and gain and pull from both of them to try to create the, there, there are positives to both these cultures that have taught me so much the drive and, and just the desire to succeed from American culture and like the, the never quit kind of attitude, just a great deal of resilience just by the sheer magnitude of volume of people in America that are just all extroverts. Mm. Or if you're not an extrovert, you better fake it. Um, <laughs> that, that's American culture. And actually I'm an introvert that no one knows about. And that's because I would have never survived my first 25 years in the U S if I hadn't learned to fake extrovert. Um, mm. cause introverts don't really make it in the U S <laughs> and, um, 
but then in Australia, I've, I've learned they, they just value time and they're okay to say no. And they're okay to go, you know what? I'm going on, I'm going on leave. Mm. And that's just as important as to work until you want to die. Um, and so I really value the two dichotomies of the, of these cultures. And it's made me a lot better person. Mm. My impression over the years of talking to different people from Australia, and uh, I mean, I, I lived in the States, so I, I know the American culture as well and lived across this, the street from the States for a long time. There seems to be a different kind of spo- sports culture in Australia. And uh, one, there's an underpinning in the fabric of the nation around just being uh, embracing sport in general um, from a health perspective and then there's you know obviously a whole set of different sports that people grow up with that are completely different than american culture do you find that that is something that is um really unique about uh the people there as well the the difference in in how they look at sport and how they um, approach sport yeah and i think um just like i've compared and contrasted kind of made my pro-con list (laughs) with culture, cultural differences at a more um, social level. I've also spent a lot of time thinking about what both cultures can learn from each other, Hmm. from sport. And, you know, the part that I recognized right away that I loved when I moved to Australia is the lifelong sport ideal that, Sport is not just something that you watch lifelong, which, which we definitively do in America. We watch that lifelong, mm-hmm. but you play it, you play it lifelong. Mm-hmm. And in the States, I think the sports where we think about it being a lifelong pursuit are unfortunately sports where you have to simultaneously have a lifelong amount of indispensable income to play like um, tennis or golf (laughs) Our, our atypical country club sports are the only sports that we think about playing lifelong in America. And we do that here in Australia too. They love tennis and golf, but the downside of those sports is it's not accessible to a majority of the people that play sport. Um, we're in Australia there are people out there, you know, I see in our master's comp for softball, um, many of people that I know and I, I work with on a volunteer basis at the, at the low, at softball Western Australia too, that are retired in their own right, but they are not retired from softball. No, they are playing every Saturday, showing me their battle wounds, getting hit by a pitch, you know, and they're all 60 plus. Right. And that is not something that I remember um, seeing or growing up with in the States with some of those team sports, those sports that you, for a really, really, really small financial outlay, you end up playing, you know, for a half a, half a year and you play, even if it's just once a week. I don't remember seeing our older demographics continue to play. Mm-hmm. Whereas here there are people playing in all types of sports for for a lifelong pursuit. And it's not just, you know, tennis and golf. It is, it is team sport and it can be anything from lawn bowls, things we don't play in the U S to cricket. And, and then those sports like softball that we do play that we definitively have room 
to expand upon in the U.S. So if I compared and contrasted, like the, what you said is true, is it's in the fabric of the nation, but it's not just in the fabric as a spectator sport. It's in the fabric that anyone at any time should give sport a go. Hmm. And um, I wish... I wish we could embrace that in the States, but I think our inherent just competitive mindset in the U S almost removes our ability to just play for fun sometimes. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so that's unfortunate. And I'll tell you what, that's what I battle with myself. So I've literally taken up sports. I didn't play in my youth so that I don't compare myself to my former self because I, I'm not perfect and I cannot remove the American ideal out of myself, which is just competitive to the bone. So I pick up new sports that I absolutely have no, I'm a tragic at. And then my only direction's up from there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pivot off of that a little bit into your career because, you know, the first time I encountered you was um, having brought you to speak at a, at a speed and, sport speed for sport conference uh, about a year and a half ago and i was really impressed by you know your uh passion for what you do and i'm curious um what's the seed of that passion why why do you care so much about um what you speak about and what you are connected to in the world of performance what what created that in you Um, you know, sometimes you don't know why, Mm. like you genuinely don't know why, but when you start to speak, you realize you're capable of exciting yourself. Um, (laughs) if, if you're speaking on a topic and you can literally excite yourself while speaking, that's a good indication that that is something unexplainable, but definitively undeniable in the belly of your belly, a fire that just drives you. Mm. And I mentally take note when that happens to me. And the topic of agility or movement has. Now, if I played self-diagnosed psychologist with myself and I did what all good psychologists would do, which is let's go back to your childhood and, um, (laughs) and talk about why that drives you. (laughs) I probably which thank goodness this is a podcast and you can't see, but what you do know is on a good day, I might weigh 50 kilos and, um, and I'm only five foot two and a half. <laughs> and I played college basketball. So someone recruited me. Thanks coach. Um, <laughs> so I'm not cut out. I'm not, I'm not built to the typical American ideal. Like Americans, we like big, huge intimidating forces. Even if you were playing badminton, we would want giant, huge humans just for the sake of being intimidating. I think that's a safe bet. We love, we love that sport. Bigger, faster, stronger. That, that defines us. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not that. <laughs> but I was always faster. And that was my saving grace. Um, it was a thing that allowed me to continue. You know, again, it's a thing. I succeeded despite and not because. And... I got to play despite being small and that was because I was fast and I was agile. I guess you have to find your strength and sometimes that strength 
comes out of your your environmental and my mine was a self-constraint i wasn't going to be very tall and i wasn't going to be very big so i naturally developed or by necessity developed a lot of traits of reading the play being being quick being agile and i knew that kept me in the game and so then i thought you know if that's that important imagine if you could develop that in lots and lots of players, not just because they have to, but imagine doing that for players that are also big as well. Mm-hmm. And imagine if they were agile, now you've got a definitive great athlete. Mm-hmm. And so I probably do love it because it was that little, it was that little nugget that I knew I had that kept me in the game despite the rest of my characteristics. And, um, and so it's really exciting to me because I believe you can develop those things and they're not something that is non-modifiable. I hate focusing on the fact that I am short because there's nothing I can, thank you for the fact. (laughs) Um, so what can we, what else can we do? And so I think that's why I get so passionate about it. And the other thing is people love the topic but they avoid it like the plague because they, I guess, because it's a little bit complicated. Mm. Um, and I love to go after things that other people are scared to do. Um, I, I was talking to a friend and she said, this describes you perfectly. The best way to motivate you is to tell you, you can't do something. <laughs> and so I think I was reading the literature. I was seeing people coach and kind of people top of agility they they say it's important but you know a lot of it was really low in in the level of depth or the amount of time we spent on it and in my mind that probably was this equivalent of we don't do research and we don't coach agility that much because you can't and Mm -hmm. I went oh really okay let's do this (laughs) (laughs) so your your motto is smaller quicker smarter (laughs) <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> this is the perfect segue for my part where i uh, read the little horoscopic piece that uh comes out of this beautiful book that i found called the day you were born so you are a libra three and your purpose is to live your beliefs and risk yourself through leadership knowing that remaining close to the truth is the only protection you have or need in an ever-changing world I believe that all of us have the capacity for one adventure inside us, but great adventure is facing responsibility day after day. William Borden. The Libra three is not interested in daily routine. Their dreams are of faraway places and impossible feats. But the truth is the greatest challenge is living day to day, taking responsibility for little things, seeing heroics and meeting everyday challenges. If Libra threes haven't had an opportunity to experience life firsthand and learn about themselves. They could be under the influence of someone with strong beliefs. It's time they take their power back and reconnect with faith and hope. If they are on the other end of the polarity, they are loners and rebels. Going against injustice or impossible odds is something they love. Charming, controlling, and willful, they make the rules. They need to stop trying to change the world and give themselves a new perspective. They need to accept their fate. Only they can transform it. They either take on too much responsibility or not enough. Balance is the key to happiness. 
Someone wrote that for me for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I see a few threads in there that sounds like uh, the lady I'm talking to. So it's kind of a good segue at that moment. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, I take on too much regularly and I, I recognize that. And um, I tried to step back within the context of my immense desire to pretty much change the world. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What is your, uh, your Achilles heel, something you do, you know, well, but it sometimes catches you uh, or bites you on the, in the leg, so to speak. Um, I recognize I have a, I have a great capacity to do work. Um, but because of that, I say yes to so many things. And like I've said, I think it's a function of the, the way I've gotten at least to the place I am in my career is I've always said, yes, Mm -hmm. I've just said, yes, whatever it is, just keep going. But now I'm to the point where the number of people that are asking me to do things, which I want to help every single one of those people is I keep saying yes. And then it, it's pretty debilitating despite my ability to, to have a great capacity to do all this work. I have a family. So I have a wife and a cat, no kids, but thank goodness. Cause those poor, poor children. <laughs> if I did, um, just based on my, my inability to say no to others, it, it makes it hard for me to have enough time for me to self-reflect. And that's something I've actually recognized through this very big year that you said before we got on to the podcast, I've had a really big year. It's been amazing, Mm -hmm. but I also recognize now I need to take a time out and figure, despite me thinking everything's important, I have to prioritize. So my biggest Achilles heel is the inability to prioritize because I believe that everybody, it's important to help everyone where you can. Mm-hmm. But at that same time, I'm actually minimizing my own growth, which is what I could probably do in order to ultimately give back to the greatest amount. So that's definitely my Achilles heel. Mm-hmm. If you um, ran into Sophia 20 years old right now, what would you say to her? Oh, that's a great question. 20 years old, <clears throat> I would... I would probably just, I came to this conclusion when I was 20, but I didn't know it was so okay. And I would tell myself, it's okay to be unapologetically yourself. Hmm. Very yep. Cool. Well, madame, we're very close to the end here. And my ending question is always the same for every party that I speak to. Um, you will perish from this earth one day. I hope it's not for a long time, but how would you like to be remembered? Um, I would like to just be remembered as one being a passionate and influential person for all of those family, my wife, And to all of those that I have the opportunity to touch through education or coaching, um, as someone who gave everything that I could to each one of those people, um, I think when you get to that point, 
you're just hoping that you influenced each one of the people that you came across in a way that it changed their life for a positive influence. Um, and I think that's why I'm doing things where I get to speak to lots of people without it being one-on-one because you want to at least allow others to listen to your story, self-reflect and feel like tomorrow they're a better person for that. Mm. And if I have done that with a substantial number of the people that I've had the opportunity to meet or for those people that are very, very close to me, particularly that they believe that I influence their life in a positive way. And even if that's just to give them the words or the ideas or the reflection to see themselves and be better tomorrow, then I've done everything that I could have hoped. Awesome. I love that. Well, I must say that, you know, I I met you last year and I really um, enjoyed the day that we spent together hiking. And um, I'm really glad I got to talk to you for an hour today. Thanks for taking the time. I know your your time is precious, Um, but uh, I appreciate you spending it with me. So thank you. No worries, Scott. It was great. (laughs) <laughs> have a good rest of your day i'm going to bed soon <laughs> take care all right yeah thanks for joining us today on leave your mark i hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast please follow us at twitter at built by scott and instagram at king O'Pain and become a member of this community at scott g Livingston on facebook have a great day music by cedric de saint Rome.